Hi, I'm Claire Mitchell, QC. Welcome to the Witches of Scotland podcast. I'm a lawyer who specialises in miscarriage of justice cases, and we're bringing you this podcast because we want to tell you about the women who were accused, prosecuted, convicted, and ultimately executed as witches in Scotland. I'm Zoe Vendatotsi, and I'm a writer who's always had an interest in the witches, and I feel that this dark mark against Scotland needs a reckoning. The campaign Witches of Scotland wants three things. Firstly, a pardon for all those convicted of witchcraft. Secondly, an apology for all those who were accused as witches. And finally, a national monument in recognition of all those who are affected by this terrible miscarriage of justice. Over the forthcoming weeks, we'll be talking to a whole host of experts about the history and the modern day connections to the Witches of Scotland. Hello and welcome to episode 60 of the Witches of Scotland podcast. 60, Claire. 60 episodes. That is, by my extremely good mathematical reasoning, 10 times... 10 times the original six episodes that we had planned. And do we show any signs of slowing down, Zoe? No, we do not. We have many, many, many more guests to come. And apologies to anybody that we've reached out to on Twitter and said, hey, would you like to be a guest? And you've said yes, and then we've not followed up yet. It's because we've got quite a long list of people to get through. So, And they're fantastic. There's loads of really great people to speak to. And today's episode is no, no difference to that. It's a fantastic episode today, if I do say so myself. But we'll come back to that. Because, Claire, I was just wondering, has there anything been happening in the news they'd like to talk about? <laughs> It's as best as we can do. We're a very low budget, zero budget, in fact. No, minus budget. There is very much, or very importantly in the news, if you're listening to this, the public consultation in respect of Natalie Dawn's bill to pardon the witches is now live. Go to it. If you Google Witches of Scotland and follow us on any of the social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, then we've got the links there for you, and most of them are pinned, so you'll be able to see them. And if you don't follow us on social media, you can Google Witches of Scotland, Pardon, Public Consultation, Natalie Dawn, any of those sorts of combinations will bring it up. So the consultation is, you put in your name, and then it's just six or seven questions where you can add more information in the boxes if you want, but if you really wanted to just click on it and answer the questions, you could be done in, what, a minute, two minutes, Zoe? Yeah, a couple of minutes, I would say. And then, of course, like Claire's saying, you can add if there's if there's particular things that you want to talk more about or that you want to have more focus on, you can do that. It's quite, it's really easy to navigate through it. It's fine. So it's really important, though, that we get as many people as possible who are, you know, pro the campaign getting involved with it because it really will show the government that this campaign has got people behind it and that it's worthwhile pursuing. Absolutely. And also when Natalie Dawn tweeted it or retweeted it, there were people who weren't interested in the idea of the campaign at all, but were just using it as a way to, I shall say this as politely as possible, exercise their right to free speech. See how polite they to keep it yes. exercise the right to free speech to explain what they thought of the politics. Now, it's so important. This isn't political. Although Natalie Dawn is bringing it forward, we've had support from Labour, we've had support from the Greens, and we've had support from members of the Conservative Party and the Lib Dems. So although this is being brought on behalf of Natalie Dawn, we have had people come to us from all the parties and express their view. And of course, the view expressed by the Public Petitions Committee as well, which is a cross-party committee. So it's really important that people, if you feel strongly about this, do go and have their say, because there will be those people who have contacted and had their say in the matter because they're expressing their political views on that, which are negative to the SNP. So please do go and put your name towards that. It's only a couple of minutes of your day, but it it makes a huge difference in the campaign and in our way of recording history. Couldn't have said it better myself, Claire. I was quite interested to see that those few dissenting voices, and this is on Twitter, so when Natalie's office put out that there was going to be the consultation process, there were a few people, and it was funny because in their profiles on Twitter, they were mostly people that had a name and then lots of numbers after it. And people that use Twitter will be familiar with what that can mean. 
but they were they were generally in their um their profiles really really negative particularly about the first minister which i think is really interesting because i always come back to this whether you're for or against her you're for her politics or against them you're for or against independence it's very interesting how many people will will have a go at the person and make very kind of unpleasant misogynistic comments about the person rather than really focusing on other aspects and as i've said so many times before that when you look in twitter in the search bar for which it's frequently the first minister is referred to as that. So it's kind of interesting that we haven't, in some ways, in some sectors of society, moved on from some behaviours in the in the, the dark days of the witch hunts. So I just think there's an interesting kind of echo through time there. So I would hope that there are enough people that are interested and supportive of the campaign that would make that known through the consultation process. Absolutely. And speaking of memorialisation through the ages... Yes. We have some other information in the news. We do. There's been this really interesting, I, I don't know what we would, would you call it an art sort of project? It's not really an art project. Yeah, it's, it's, call it. it's sort of public art. Public art trail in Perth that's that's recently just been put up and is going to be on until the end of September. And it's statues of women where there are stories about them that have been researched by different community groups. And then an artist has made these wire sculptures that are up for the, you know, the sort of couple of months. And then they're going to be gathered together in September. And then they're going to be put together for when the mod comes to Perth. And then everything's going to be translated into Gaelic as well as the English to kind of cover both those things. And they're really, really interesting. We have an episode coming up soon where we're going to talk to the person that's um, spearheading that. And it's really interesting thinking about the way in which we memorialise people, particularly women, and then people's engagement with these memorials. So I think that's going to be fascinating. It's definitely worth going to Perth in the meantime to go and check it out. And they've got um, these really nice maps that are available in all the different tourist places and I think hotels and various other places, libraries, that sort of thing, where you can have a wander around Perth City Centre and see the 20 different statues. And then I think also there's a QR code link as well. So you can you can scan them and then there's more information, I think, on the website. So that's definitely worth going to have a look at. They're really stunning, actually. And we'll put some pictures up on our social media as well so you can see what it is that you're looking at if you can't make it to Perth. But it's definitely worth a visit. Now, that brings us on to today's episode. Now, as I said at the beginning, this is a kind of unusual episode for us because instead of us having a guest talking to us online and then us putting that together, we had the pleasure of talking to the writer Jenny Fagan on stage at Glasgow's I Write Literary Festival. And so today's episode is the recording of that live event where Jenny talks about her book and then we have some questions and answers from the audience. And uh, it was lovely to meet so many people in real life, wasn't it, Claire, that our listeners that we've talked to online Oh, it was. It was a great opportunity. There was a great buzz about it. It was really fantastic to see so many people and uh, so many of Jenny's fans there. Um, they were really, really keen to speak to her. Without any further ado, we are delighted to introduce this week's episode, which is talking to the writer and poet Jenny Fagan. Hello. Hi. I'm going to make you do it back to me now. Hello. What? They're so good and compliant. It's great. Thank you so much for coming along tonight to I Write. Um, we're in the final weekend of this fantastic festival of literature. And um, it gives me great delight, delight tonight to talk to our guest um, as part of what we do. So first of all, my name is Zoe Vendatotsi. And I'm Claire Mitchell. And we are the Witches of Scotland. That's how we start the podcast, Jenny. It's a bit, it's a bit naff, but I felt we had to do it. So we, tonight we're going to be talking to Jenny Fagan, who, of course, we'll all know from all the different areas in which that she's written. But she's written particularly a book here, Hex, that um, is, is just so perfect that we just thought it would be a really good opportunity to talk to you. And we're recording, very much fingers crossed, we're recording this as a podcast but I don't know if anybody here has listened to podcasts, you'll know that Claire and I are not technically gifted. So we're, we're really hoping that the bit we're doing will actually work out. So that's why we've got our phones out. We're not taking messages. We are recording and keeping an eye on the time. So anyway, without any further ado, let's welcome to the stage Jenny Fagan. Hi. 
Thank you. So I think what we're going to do tonight is we're just going to have a chat with you, Jenny. You're going to do a, a reading, yep. then some more chat, and then take some questions. Magic. So that's all good. So if you think of some questions, and then afterwards, I believe, Jenny, you're going to be signing books outside. Aye, I can do that. Yep. So if you are a bit shy um, and you don't want to ask a question here, but you'll, you'll feel very well, warm and welcome, it'll be fine. Um, you can always talk to Jenny afterwards as well. So please do think about what questions you'd like to ask her. So... Jenny, do you want to kick off with the reading? or Yes, why not? So um, I'm reading from Hex, which is uh, my book about the story of, largely about the story of Gilly Duncan, who um, was executed for the crime of witchcraft on the 4th of December, 1591. And she was a, a teenage girl who worked for <coughs> a bailiff called David Seaton. And... Um, the book is basically a seance held across time between two women, two witches, two women, and it's about celebrating the friendship and bonds of these two women. So uh, Iris is from the future, 500 years in the future, and she goes back because she doesn't want Gilly to be alone in her cell on the last night of her life. So this first wee part is Iris, and then I'll do you a wee part from Gilly. Chapter one. Iris, midnight, open invitation sent via seance, 1st of August, 2021, to sell on the high street, 4th of December, 1591. Elements, null plus air. I was out in the null, in perpetuity, it seemed. I was bodiless and formless until things began to appear. A row of oil-lit street lamps, a cobbled road sloping down, the moon, a thin smile. City trees bending their boughs so far back. The winds wild. Tall tenement buildings line the road to Castle Hill. A witch will die here in the morning. I descend a full three levels below the city of Edinburgh into a low arched stone corridor. A guard is nestled in a nook. He peers into the gloom. I need him to go so I can come to you coalesce right next to his ear and whisper back out you go into the null go on your body is so heavy isn't it who is that I don't know how I know how to do this but I do I always have I gently help his consciousness to separate from his body it's only dreaming I say it into his ear low and over and over until his eyes close and his head lolls to be able to do something like this, you must learn not to have those around you drink your energy. I have learned the hard way. As a child, I used to give away light like it was nothing. Those without it would fill themselves up with all that good energy like I was an eternal font. The purest light attracts the most impenetrable darkness. Great giant moths of death come flying for it at night all across the world. They will smother any source until all they have left is an empty husk. I will pay a price for this. That is how it goes. With shaken hands that don't feel quite solid at all, I take off his boots and wretch. Can a spirit dweller vomit? Yes, yes, yes. What a stench is as bad as this they can. He has horned yellow toenails, thick and fungal. Throw his boots away down a tiny wee well. If he wakes, he won't get anywhere quickly. You need time to prepare, Gilly Duncan. They will execute you in the morning. Strike a match. We have so little time. I must hurry now. Will I read the other bit later? Yeah, whatever. We yeah, are. let's do that. We can let's talk and then we people can, can understand back. the setup. Grand. So anybody that's familiar with your writing or certain aspects, particularly with Luck and Booth, mm. will know that you have an interest in your writing with this kind of world and these kind of women. Can you talk a wee bit about that? Um, <laughs> yes, I guess I can. Um, it's trying to, to work out which way to frame it. Yeah. Uh, so when I was five, I was in primary school and um, they asked what everybody wanted to be when they grew up and, you know, Lorna so so wanted to be an air hostess and yada yada wanted to be whatever and I said a witch wow. and um, the teacher was like that's really not very Christian and uh, <laughs> you know 
not possible, basically. But it was always there, my interest in, in things that you can't see or you can't understand or the idea and energy of a female as a witch, you know, as somebody who grew up um, voiceless in, in the care system, there was something very potent about it to me. But I was also a child who had very extreme dreams, who um, sometimes seemed to know certain things that I shouldn't, or would draw things that would later turn up. And there was no particular explanation for that, and it's not something I even discuss very much now. But the the relationship of that and words and storytelling were always hugely important to me, and they still are. And the different archetypes of the idea of the witch or the idea of witchcraft and how that fits into our legal system now, how that fits into the idea of what is acceptable and what's not acceptable and, and uh, how women are convicted. Uh, all these things still have very much an impact today. And so those structures are, are really fascinating to me as well. Yeah, I think it, what's really interesting, I think, about Hex is the way that you've woven together this modern woman mm. and this woman from the times past and when they speak to each other, which you can maybe talk about a wee bit more, you see the similarities. And there's one point, mm. I think, where Iris says, I wish I could tell you that things have changed. Mm. But they haven't. I'm paraphrasing, obviously. You put it much more, much more yeah. better than that, like <laughs> to put it. But I think that's really interesting because that's something that we've come, come up against a lot with the campaign is that when people say, and it's, this doesn't happen often, people say, well, what's the point of this? What's the relevance? Mm. Then we're kind of like, well, here's, here's the relevance. It wasn't all women that were executed, but 85% of those that were, that were accused were women. Yeah. And we haven't moved on so very much since then. You know, there's still an issue with that. Mm -hmm. So I think it's really interesting the way that you've married the two times and ages of women sort of thing mm. in that place. And the commonality, I mean, I think... There's, a, there's always a temptation when you're writing something historically to be overly reverential in a certain way. And I know there's certain historians would like me to be more reverential, but there we go. <laughs> um, I think the thing that's really interesting is who people are. And so when we think about witches or we think about Gilly Duncan or we think about our execution, you know, I wanted to think about what was her granny's house like and when she stood on the beach in North Berwick feeling powerful as a wee girl, you know, what was that like? And when she takes pride in her job, she works as a maid, but she likes her job. All of those things get lost in, in the way that we sort of fetishise, you know, the archetype rather than the human behind the archetype. And she was a teenage girl just living in extraordinary circumstances, much bigger than her. And um, Unfortunately, there was absolutely nothing that she could do about that. And there's one point where she says, you know, really, they killed me because I went out at night. And even now in the newspapers, sometimes you see them say, oh, well, you shouldn't have went to a park after eight o'clock. Or, you know, it's such a, such a um, sad thing that, you know, you might want to go for a walk in, in you know, the dark and look at the stars, but you might yeah. have to think twice about that still. So stay in your chains so that you may be safe sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. a horrible idea. One of the things that I was thinking about when I read it was the fact that although the two women are separated by 500 years, mm. there really is no difference in them in terms of the way that they thought mm -hmm. or their ideas. And one of the things that we get a lot on, on uh, Witches of Scotland is people saying that could never happen again because those people were stupid back then that thought of those things and they were, you know, they didn't understand. We, we wouldn't fall for that now. We understand that this isn't real. But what was really interesting mm -hmm. was finding the woman 500 years on mm -hmm. saying, we're, we're just falling for different stories now. Okay, mm -hmm. we're not burning women as witches, mm -hmm. but other things are happening to us. Yeah, and th I think that that would never happen again. We are watching the world clearly encapsulating the fact that that will happen again and history repeats itself over and over. And that's one of the things I find really interesting. You know, there's always the idea that people in history didn't take drugs or have sex or fight or, you know, have big thoughts. And we didn't invent it. The generation before us didn't invent it. This has, you know, always been the case. Um, and so the idea that any of those things are, are so far away 
all you need to do is look at our legal system. All you need to do is look at somebody who stands up in our legal system, stands up in our media, and uh, the the consequence that they can have for that. And it's really not a safe system yet. It's a better system, but it's by no means not still impacted, you know. One of the things someone talks about, I think it was Mary Craig on the podcast, said she was talking about a woman that had been accused of witchcraft. And mm. I know when you talk about Edinburgh, like I love the way you imagine Edinburgh and you mm. talk about it. And I love the fact that you can identify, obviously, all the places. Mm. But she said um, something which I found really funny, which she said, most of the witches that were executed in Edinburgh lived in tenements. Mm. And I was like, oh my God. Yeah, you just don't picture it. I don't no, think that it, it's, a, it's a similar lifestyle to cities now, you know, you'd think, of it. I don't know exactly what I pictured, but the thought that there were yeah. tenements was actually quite sort of shocking to me. Yeah, and so much of it was down to, you know, lots of people were accused just because of money. You know, when Gilly Duncan is accused, her, her employer is the bailiff, David Seaton, he's in lots of debt. His wife has a brother. The brother is married briefly to a woman called Euphemie McAlsian. Euphemie McAlsian has inherited a lot of money that he thinks that he should have. She's a very wealthy woman. She's wealthy enough that her husband even takes her name, which, you know, it's like, who does that at the time? And, um, well, how can you, what could you do? Well, you could have her accused of witchcraft. Who could you have to accuse her of witchcraft? There's a maid worker in the house. You know, a lot of the things were down to, you know, money, power, land, mm. business, you know, vindictiveness. Uh, and just a display of power, a display yeah. to, of, of the state's power, a display of what the state can do. You know, years and years ago, I built a, a school's bridal. I was living in London and I decided to build a school's bridal, sculpt a school's bridal from steel. I didn't know how to sculpt with steel, but I was just going with that punk, like, <laughs> you'll work it out. So I ordered big, massive sheets of steel to come to my tiny wee flat in London and uh, I had to do it in the back garden and I cut out this big school's bridle, it's like a mask that would go over a woman's head and there would be a, a, a kind of point that would hold your tongue down and you would be paraded through the market to show what happens if you're done with the crime of scolding and the crime of scolding was one step off of being done with the crime of cursing and uh, so that was what they did. So I was working with women in prison at the time and I wanted to show how women in prison are convicted and tried as women as much as they are tried for their, the crimes that they've committed. And so I built this massive school's bridal, um, cut it out, this giant pagan mask, and I bolted the ears down on it. And I... <laughs> <laughs> drilled the eyes out and did all this stuff. And my neighbours were really religious and they kept looking out the window, <laughs> just like, what is she doing? What is she doing? And then I couldn't get it to age, so I set fire to it. And then <laughs> I left it under the moon for a few months. And, uh, and they were just like, they were Baptists. They were really lovely people. And um, yeah, it was getting more <laughs> faded and just staring at them from the garden. And... Um, I engraved it with words sent to me by women in prison in the UK and in the US, um, and it was it was it was a huge undertaking to do that and to show how they were silenced because they were women, not because of the crimes they committed, but because they were women who had committed those crimes. And um, anyway, in the end, I painted it black and I did all the words in silver, and they came out as a palimpsest. And I said to the neighbours, it's just a project for university. They <laughs> were like, sure. They were still we're really nervous of me. Yeah, yeah totally. <laughs> um, but yes, that, I, that idea of those systems and how those systems are still impacted and how any woman who speaks out on, on so many things still has to prove that they might be truthful, prove that they might not just be, you know, hysterical or just not know their mind or you know or they've maybe been mistaken or you know all these different yeah. things it's still just such a, a massive part of culture it, and uh, and these two women they laugh you know and they're funny and they do what women do what people do you know even in the worst of circumstances and um what she wants to what iris comes back from the future she wants to let her be warm she wants to conjure up this blanket and let her have some soup and let her have some 
dignity and that last wee space that she's got. So really, she's she's come back in time so that she's not on her own on her final night. That, Completely. That she's there as a as a yeah. companion with her to see yeah. her through it. But she doesn't know herself, Iris, what will happen. No. So no. She, it's a leap of faith for her, essentially, to Completely. go and do this. Yeah. And I wrote this in lockdown, um, like, <laughs> literally, like, channeling, you know, a 15th century witch for th three months upstairs and then going down and making the tea. Yeah. It was a very intense... Yeah. Um, experienced because Gilly Duncan was a real person and she had a real mum and a real sister and you know she she died that way so who am I to engage with her story unless I'm going to be completely respectful to it you know and were you approached by the publishers for for a series that, that they brought out yeah did they tell you who they wanted you to write about or did they just say can you give us something they just said witches witches <laughs> Jenny witches go and, and I, I went, I okay. Yeah. So did well, you, you have a research? Brief. I mean, you nailed exactly, it. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Did you have a research process where you're working out who you wanted to write about or did you know the story already and you were like, that was an automatic fit for you? Um, I've studied kind of witchcraft, the history of witchcraft, things around witchcraft on and off all, all, my, um, all my adult life. So I had an idea, and I, I love North Berwick, I adore North Berwick, and there's the image that when King James V comes into East Lothian, he says that he can't land because there's 200 witches and cauldrons out on the bay. Can you imagine? <laughs> Just be wonderful. Anyway, <laughs> they're out on the bay hanging out with the devil, and him and his young wife, Queen Anne, from Denmark, can't come in. And he, at the time, is beginning to write demonology what better marketing campaign could you possibly have yeah. than um, doing a real-life witch trial before you publish your book six years later? Anyway, just saying. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, and I've always been really drawn to North Berwick and uh, Kelly Duncan was just, she seemed like the right one to work with. Yeah, the, the idea of her, you, you write teen girls so well mm. you know if anybody's familiar with with Jenny's first book the Panopticon mm. that your the character and that's really fantastic you really are able to access what it's like that kind of you know the rage the powerlessness but also the power that they've got I currently live with my daughter who's 17 tomorrow so I'm really in that that <laughs> zone just now <laughs> holy moly yeah. um, so but you really are great at accessing where she is but that is really intense to write from that viewpoint Completely. even at the best of times never mind you know the night before an execution exactly and exactly. there's obviously not that much sort of historical fact known about her so you must have had to have done quite a lot of kind of imagination mm -hmm you know, st filling out the story. Was was um, that easy to do? It, it was after a point, yeah. I mean, I looked at the... I, I read the Malleus Maleficarum for fun <laughs> every couple of years anyway. And um, I looked at demonology again and some of the European witchcraft texts, some of the historical Scottish witchcraft texts. Um, there was a, a publication, um, News of Scotland or News of News of Edinburgh, which was published at the time, documenting what was happening with with the witches. So that would go down to England. They always wanted it to be really, you know, they always wanted the really graphic sexual bits because, oh, of course, yeah, it's very, yeah. very, very important. Yes, exactly. Them. That was, you know, that was very popular. Um, it so definitely wasn't about sexual repression of the men in the church at no, all. No, it definitely no, it was wasn't only, a driving no, force no. for these young women to be stripped naked and inspected. It's no. uh, and the things in it, like, you know, there's the whole... In, de in demonology, there's a story about a priest who... Um, is, there was a thing that a woman could take a penis just by looking at a man's body and, you know, she would turned into a horse if she didn't take the Eucharist and all these different things. But anyway, the priest had had his penis taken by the local witch. And, no, it wasn't the priest, it was somebody else. And he was annoyed about it, so... He, <laughs> he would be, I mean, I mean fairness. to be fair. It's to be fair, you know, anyway, so... Did it, did it say what, when she'd taken away what she'd done with it? Or? Well, she puts them in a box. They oh. would put them in a box. Penis box. So she, he, he goes over to our house and, you know, knock, knock, knock. I want my penis back. And uh, <laughs> she says, well, come in, go over and have a look in the box. Rubbish is uh, about. Yeah, so there's like 30 penises in this box. And they said that they were like, um, like they, they sort of snuffled around and ate oats and apple, apples. Anyway, it's very imaginative. So much to unpick. So much that. to unpick in that. <laughs> and he says to her, um, I'm going to take that one. <laughs> And he takes the biggest one. 
And she says, that's not yours, that's the taste's. And this is in the legal documentation of how we tried and decided who would be tried as witchcraft. And then they said they would put the penis... So, so sorry for anybody who's been distressed by this. Um, they would put the penises... They would hang them up in the trees so the birds could come and eat them. Oh. Uh, and this is, again, in the legal text that they used in court. To yeah. try and convict and justify the torture and execution of you know these women and the, the men also who were who were tried as I mean, witches. We've spoken to quite a lot of historians, and there it's it's interesting the sort of the reluctance from quite a few of the historians to paint it as a gendered issue. Mm. Um, quite quite a lot of the historians have been like it's very complex. It's not black and white, which obviously we would completely agree with. It clearly mm. isn't just black and white. Um, but it wasn't really necessarily about them being women. And we were always a bit like, well, yeah. <laughs> the numbers are pretty suggestive. And then we had a, a woman, a woman oh, on, it was Professor Ma Marion Gibson. Marion Gibson and she was like, absolutely gendered. How, mm. how could it be anything else? 85% yeah. of the accused are women. And a lot of the men that were accused were caught up in things. They were a son or you know, a friend or a husband occasionally that was, that was named or had been named by somebody else, a woman that had been accused and mm -hmm. in her confession had given up other names. It's just, it, of course it's gendered, I think. And I'm not saying there's, there's a display of power as well, and for yeah. the, the men who were, you know, Gilly talks about being tortured by uh, David Smeaton and, and multiple other uh, men who'd come along, and it was important for me to write in that that some they'd all lots of them had known each other since childhood that some of those men were outside being sick because they didn't want to be caught in that circumstance necessarily, yeah. but once you're in a situation where male power, the consequence of this this power in the state is death that's pretty hard to stand up against, yeah. especially if you're on the side that's less likely to die. Um, so the nuances of it are massive, mm -hmm. and um, I don't think in any way hugely served you know, most ordinary people. Yeah. You know, there was financial gain. They were paid by the hour. They paid the witch pickers by the hour. Yeah. Who would pay you by the hour unless they really want to, do you know what I mean? Draw it out. Draw yeah. it out. And, um, they thought they were, you know, the, the justification was we're going after the devil. We're mm -hmm. going after the devil via via women or teenage girls, largely, or men who've, you know, worked with them or sympathised with them or stood up for them or men who've been different in one way or another. And, uh, you know, the idea that King James was standing up to the devil himself makes him a pretty formidable person. Who's going to fight a man who's fought the devil? Nobody. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And this was a paranoid guy, you know. He's, he'd been through a lot. <laughs> he'd yeah. been through a lot in his life. He'd had a lot of trauma. You know, mm -hmm. we we had a psychoanalyst on for one of the episodes and we yeah. talked about trauma and the impact mm -hmm. that that has. And, you know, we talked about largely about the generational trauma from the accused and the, and the families that had been, where the, the people had been found guilty, mm -hmm. how that may have echoed down through generations of Scotland. Absolutely. Yeah, you know. and we know now that trauma is born into people, you know, physiologically, trauma is born into people and, and, and in other ways it's there as well, you know, so, aye, it's just a really fascinating thing, but again, it's ordinary people by and large mm -hmm. being caught in circumstances of history that are just massive. The and terror I, people must have felt over when it was at its peaks, mm -hmm. when anybody, you must have been thinking, you know, I don't want to step out of line or, mm -hmm. you know, get caught for something that wouldn't, wasn't really a big deal, but could go yeah. together in a, in a so-called case against you. Or be a quarrelsome dame in any way. You wouldn't want to yeah. be caught being a quarrelsome dame. And the hysteria. Stay quiet. The kind of collective hysteria that would go around it, you know, and I, you just think what we need to learn we still need to learn from it um, and these people were just people yeah but it seems that we don't learn no and it seems that although we're not executing people as witches women mm. as witches or indeed people in general as witches mm. we have a whole new forum of uh, attacking people through social media 
So we kind of started off with, at this time, the printing press and the printing press, the news from Scotland becoming yeah. a big thing, pamphlets. Yeah. We now have the modern media and we also see a lot of women who stick their head above the parapet mm. on social media mm. and come in for all sorts of flack. Completely. And as you say, having to continually prove themselves mm. in order to be heard. And every group that's othered is experiencing that. You know, our media does it. The vilification of anybody who lives in poverty, the vilification of anybody who, you know, has chronic illness, the vilification of anybody whose sexuality is, you know, not considered the mainstream, the vilification of everyone who is othered has got a, a nice shiny lieutenant right on them. And that is, you know, the media. And then, as you say, filter down into things like social media. Um, Do you feel a kind of responsibility sometimes to be the voice of the othered through your writing? No, I I am somebody who grew up othered, and I will always I will always um, be on that that uh, viewpoint more than I ever will be on any other. That's where I come from. It's 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 what I am. So it's funny when I go to different countries, they're always like, "You, you talk, you write about these people." <laughs> 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 you're obsessed with these people and um, and the other and I say well these people are people and they're the people that I'm interested in and I am these people you mm. know I'm not writing from a, a voyeuristic point of view you know I'm writing from a position that was absolutely entrenched in that and uh, as a human being that's difficult as an artist it's a great way to learn it's a really great way to learn because you observe those structures and those um, different nuances in a very thorough way, you know. Is it hard after you've written something like Hex, um, mm. you know, or 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 Looking Booth, or the Panopticon? I think like any any of your books, really. Is it hard after after that to kind of go back to normal life again? You know, is there a sort of a decompression period? I'm thinking particularly Hex because Hex is very harrowing. Mm. So when you finished that, you know, you said it was over a three month period. Did you have to take time? out from writing or were you working on something else or I'm always working um it can make you quite ill basically mm -hmm. it does make you quite ill for a while it can be it, there's a definite impact from it there's a fallout from it I work very intensive intensively and very you know kind of hyper focused when I'm doing it um I always say that part of your brain is like the really the bit where you get all all the good stuff and then your day-to-day -day life you're kind of like oh god like we're not need to do the puberty. Like, do you know what I mean? Yeah. It is a. It definitely is. Um, it's a different space, but it's a space I've been working in for such a long time. I understand it. I understand getting into that mind state. I I lose time. I start writing, and then it's six hours later. If I'm writing well, it's ten hours. You know, you mm -hmm. the, the you you write in this um, very particular space. Um, and research, and then I edit very critically. I come out of that, and then I'm very, very kind of critical and think in a completely different way, much more clear-minded way. And then you go back in and you know repeat the process kind of thing. But um, normal life, what is normal life? Yeah. <laughs> is anybody having a normal yeah. life? I don't know. <laughs> and you write across different forms too. So you, there's mm. a poem at the end of Hex. Aye. Why did you decide to include a poem? I wanted to write a poem for Gilly, so I felt like she, uh, I, I felt very attached to her when I was writing it. And um, if I go past Castle Hill, you know, I always, you know, have a wee nod. I'll get a wee grey rose at some point for her. Um, but I'm a poet first and foremost. Everything's poetry to me. Everything comes from poetry. So it made sense to kind of conclude with that. I needed it to sort of end, end the journey. Yeah, that's interesting. And um, and you've got several books that are coming out. Well, a, a couple of things that are oh coming yeah. out soon, don't you? Do you want to mm -hmm. talk about that a little bit, or? Um, yeah, sorry, my little Madonna mic's doing. Are you okay? No, I'm no, I'm grand. I'm just kind of making noises at you. <laughs> um, I've got a poetry collection called the Bone Library coming out in autumn. Uh, I was working in a bone library 
at Summer Hall in Edinburgh. It was the old Bone Library. And, um, so Summer Hall was so the vet Summer school, Hall was the it? old Dick Vets in Edinburgh, yeah. And uh, I went to a staff meeting. I was the port in residence in the building. So I went to a staff meeting to see what I could find out about the building. And somebody said, oh, is anybody told her about the bones in the attic? And you were like, hello. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I'm here. And then somebody else was like, no, no, no. And then somebody said, they're inferior bones. And I was like, well, I really want them now. Like... <laughs> So I made them take me up to the attic and uh, anyway, spent all week dragging big boxes of bones down and I was um, engraving poetry on the bones, like the kind of old oracle bones in China. I used to use divination in different ways of working them. Anyway, I was working in the workshop. <laughs> I was engraving in the workshop and bone engraving stinks really, really horrifically. How, do, how yeah. do you engrave on bones? Um, I was using Dremels. I was using a, I would do it by hand first and then I would use Dremels and so when you're going down through the, la the layers, anyway, I was in the workshop with the guys that do all the maintenance on uh -huh. the building and they were like, yay, come and, you know, it's fine, we'll give you a space and they were all being dead nice and then a week later they went to the boss and they're like, well, you, we can't eat our sandwiches, like, <laughs> <laughs> we can't it's eat just it's just, it's just <laughs> and they came back and they were like, you're, you're going to have to go and work in the courtyard and I was like, okay, so anyway. And and are the bones the bones categorised? Do you know what yes, the yes. bones so are? Yes, yes. You would have like ox bones, or um, not all of them. You wouldn't always know what animal they were, but you would get like the spine, or you would get the all the different things. So they're all going up in display in Summer Hall. Okay. So when I do the Bone Library launch, all the bones and the bone artwork will be there. Wow. And uh, the Bone Library was, and then it, it's in Luckenbooth. I, I thought it was too good not to use, so it ended up being in Luckenbooth. But they were um, taking out all the old cabinets in the Bone Library to make it wheelchair access, which I thought was brilliant. But I said, you know what, I want to create a poem that's like a spine that goes along at the height if you're in a wheelchair, so you get the, the poem as you go along and it goes into the gig venue. So it was just kind of ways of tying up the, you know, the old and the new in the building. Um, I took my wee boy into work and he was just like, Mum, this is really weird. <laughs> <laughs> Did he not already have a hint of that? Yeah, it's, it's you know, it's it's normal at home. Nice it's kind of normal. Yeah. But even that was another level, yeah. you know. Yeah. It, was pushing it, it was pushing it a wee bit. It was pushing it a wee bit, yeah. Um, yeah, so, and then I've got, uh, which hasn't been announced yet, so. Oh, will we oh. Jo should we just move on? Yeah. Okay. Oh, okay. okay. Is we'll there anything else you'd like to talk about <laughs> that you have announced? Um, I'm doing a bunch of TV things, so I'm writing a, I'm writing the Blade Artist by Irvin Welsh as a six-part TV series, which is um, Big B, 25 years on. Uh, he's working as a very successful commercial artist in LA. He's spent a long time in prison. And then he's, uh, he's yeah, he's in this new place in his life. So that's, I'm working on that just now, which is amazing. It's absolutely brilliant. And, uh, it's another responsibility, because mm. like Hex, you take on the responsibility of telling that story. And it's a very specific there's legacy. There's a lot of people, yeah, completely. there's a lot of people that are wedded to beg these stories. Absolutely. And, you know, Robert Carlyle was so brilliant, and he's... It's really, I'm really excited to be working with them, you know. And it's work I did when I was, you know, in my teens, kind of living in homeless accommodation in a wee bedsit a long time ago. Um, so I, I'm doing that, and then we are doing The Panopticon as a TV series. Wow. And um, I might direct that, I'm not sure, but I'll definitely be writing it. And then we're doing Luckenbooth as so a busy. very long-running TV series, because that's obviously over a, a long period of time. So that is, that's the plan for the three of them. Fantastic. Um, we, we hope Hex might be a runner for yeah, TV as well. Yeah. I'd love to see it in the theatre, actually. It would make it's a such brilliant an intense space, space. And you've really just got one main yeah. location. Mm. Uh, I think it would be really, really cool. So will you sort of put on the back burner the writing of novels just now, if you're doing all the TV work? To a certain degree, I've got half of my next novel down, um, and that's coming out with the other announcement next week. Okay so okay. there's two two books coming. Uh, so no, I've got half of one down, and I was like, oh, I'm going to take a wee break from writing novels, and it's like, no, I'm not. Yeah. <laughs> but I'll have to stagger it. You know, I'll, I'll I'll work intensively on one, and then you take a break and you go and you do the other. And I I don't start novels lightly because I know that once you're in it. 
you're not never really going to chill out until it's done. Like it just sits on your shoulder, yeah. and it could be three years, feeling. it could be five years, it could be one year. You just don't know. You yeah. Know? So um, yeah. Can, can I take you back to something that you said at the start, which was that when you were a wee girl, mm. you wanted to be a witch. Mm. When you were that age, what did you think a witch was? What were you looking for? Mm. Well, I dread. I must have read The Worst Witch in school, which I loved. Yes, it's obviously brilliant. And um, I just the idea of like turning people into frogs and stuff. Okay, uh, you know. sensible. So like sort of vengeful, maybe a I little was, bit I vengeful. I was about to say benign there, but it's not really benign. <laughs> no, no it's not. Yeah. I wanted just to fly, obviously flying, brilliant. Um, uh, yeah, just all in, you know, wearing black. And so I was a little goth child who wasn't dressing like a goth yet, but it was on the way. Yeah, the goth Do you know heart. what I mean? It yeah. definitely was, you know, and I was just, I was really into... Um, telekinesis before I knew what telekinesis was so I would sit staring at a pencil I'd be like if I just <laughs> for ages it never worked sadly but it could yeah. and the idea that it could yeah. was the thing that fascinated me and um, obviously growing up in the care system you you have stories told to you all the time about who you are and stories about who other people are and I was always quite sceptical about that and um, witches were like heroes to me. You know, the idea of that was just the idea of working with the unseen when so much in society that is unseen is uh, people say, it just doesn't happen, that's not real, that's, you know, all yeah. these things. So the idea of people who actively chose to work with the unseen were fascinating to me. The idea of having a kind of a hidden power as well, yeah. that, you know, in a fairly powerless situation to have yeah. that internal power. Completely. And there was a, there's a superstition about children that come from nowhere. You know, a little child from nowhere turns up in your kitchen and people are like, <laughs> where did it, I mean, well, the social worker brought it, but like, where, do you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> there really is, and it's pretty freaking pronounced. Like, yeah. So I was always um, aware of that. I was always aware that, you know, people are quite freaked out by children anyway, I think, as well. Yeah. <laughs> you, you, watch, you watch any horror thing, there'll be some small yeah, child in somewhere whispering. Kids get it. You the know, film, what's it, is it The Witch? Or? It's called The Little Girl that she just turns up in the village in Africa and then she mm. she goes to live with a community of witches. If you've oh, not this seen was that, the it's brilliant. Yeah, it was it's kind of called I Am Witch. Yeah. I have seen it recently. Total brain fog. But it's really brilliant. And that she mm. gets taken in, well, they're sort of forced to live with a community of older women witches. Mm -hmm. I think oh, it'll be I've your kind of. Yeah, yeah, no, I'd like to see that. I think you'd like it. Yeah. Mm. It's, it's pretty cool the way that they, they imagine that there. But yeah, I think that's, that's really interesting. And we've talked before about fictional witches and the, the places that witches have in, in, in myth and in film and in TV and in fiction mm. against the women and men that were accused of being witches and how, mm. how it's kind of an interesting kind of push and pull between those two things. Mm. It's interesting. And I think there's a separation between convicting women or convicting, you know, gay men or convicting, you know, whoever as a display of power, as a display of the state and killing somebody for the religion. You know, I wouldn't sit and say there's no such thing as a witch. I wouldn't say there's no such thing as an occult. You know, we at the moment are sitting on a planet surrounded by infinite space. It was created 13.9 billion years ago out of atoms and matter, and we don't know why we're here. So the idea that we know for sure we've got it all tied up via science, which is fairly recent, um, just isn't true. You now know, for the we use such a small campaign. part of our brain. <laughs> I get it, but I'm, you know, coming from my own personal journey, both with words and with the human mind and what the human mind's capable of and the things we don't understand about the human mind, the things we don't understand about how we use it, there's a difference between saying that woman took my penis just by looking at me or somebody is tapped into an energy that why is that any different from going to church and eating the, the, the body of Christ and drinking his blood. Well, that's cannibalism and vampirism just in one fell swoop. Yeah. No disrespect, if you're into it, you're into it. But let's not say yeah. that the idea, you know... The like, why is that? That's okay. Because you've got really okay? good PR. And to be fair, yeah, Christianity nicked most of its festivals from the Wiccan, the Wiccan yeah, you the, know, uh -huh. and pagan Easter, religions. Easter. These yeah. were earth religions. They were things that were about looking after the planet, about looking after each other, about birthing children, about being engaged with the stars, and about knowing that you don't know 
the answers. Mm. And so that's brilliant. That's a brilliant thing. They're all, they're all stories. They're all stories to try and origin help us myths. explain what we don't know. And in the Wiccan origin myth, they say that there, is the, there was the age of the father, and then there was the age of the son, and they were basically the age of industry. They were really vital for you know, having that more aggressive energy, for, for building all the things in society we needed to build. Absolutely vital. But if we do not transcend to the, the age of the, the mother or the daughter, we will destroy ourselves. And we are sitting on that cusp right now. So I think the idea that, oh, witches, that's so out there, is, um, again, I think about the femininity of it and about the fact that it was lots of women who didn't have power. You know, people who don't have power are still massively vilified. And we know that the current today. cases of those that are accused of being witches in, in places like Nigeria or Malawi, um, Papua New Guinea, it tends to be women again, and it tends to be uh, religious organisations that have that have said, you know, that that person's a witch, and there's money to be made from it as well. There's definitely, it's a bit like the paid by the hour situation. If you give me money, I will rid your community of a witch. Mm -hmm. And it tends to be older women often, or children, mm -hmm. and, you know, they're maybe banished, but there have been cases of people being killed by mob rule. Mm -hmm. And in fact, in Malawi, they're, they're wanting to put back on their legal books yep. the crime of being a witch, because mm -hmm. there's so much kind of off piste, you know, and crazy my thing is stuff. if there's a crime of being a witch, why isn't there a crime of being a priest? Why isn't there a crime of being an imam? Why isn't there a crime of being... I've studied all the religions, on and off, you know, and there's so much kind of commonality around them. Why is the idea of this particular um, thing so... so um, there's so much superstition around it, you know? And I think that there's very much a place for... Uh, both the origin myths and, and, and the energy and the ideas of the things that come from that and that saying, oh, it's all just a made-up thing. Well, clearly, she probably didn't turn into a horse when she didn't take the Eucharist and, uh, you know, probably wasn't flying on a broomstick. But um, when the shamans do their journeys and they, you know, take DMT and go out in the desert and have these out-of-body experiences, what is the difference in that? Why are we almost vilifying the idea of witchcraft or Wiccan origins. I don't know. I think there's something in it. I think there's something in it that's very interesting right now. And I think it's very much tied to, you know, in Scotland we would have the wise women, you know, and they would be consulted before you went into war. They had power, you know. And the Hans Christian Andersen fairy tales, they brought them in and were like, take the women out, put warts on them, you know, give them big noses and stuff. Because before that, in the fairy tales, there was women who had a lot of power. It's about power. Mm. Um, and it's about, you know, how dare you have any innate knowledge? How dare you have any innate knowing? And what if you have something that I can't see and write down and prove, you know? What's really strange about the women that were accused of witchcraft was, at the time, they were like, well, they're women. So mm. They can't really be powerful. Mm. Where they must get their, their power from then is the devil. Yeah. They were still powerless. They were still vessels for the devil. So even when accusing them of witchcraft, mm. even when accusing them of killing people, of uh, putting spells on people that would harm their children or their family. Mm. They still couldn't conceive of the idea of the woman herself being powerful. But that's why they brought in the devil. Because if she's powerful, she has to be powerful for a male, a, exactly. fall, a fallen angel or whatever it is. That's the only way that she could be displaying her power was if she was bestowed at. And she definitely has to be by debased this. by having all the sex. Yeah. And all the detail Maybe of it. Maybe they like the sex. You know, I don't no. know. There's so many things around it. Do you know what I mean? There's, there there some of the stories are pretty elaborate. Yeah. You know, the, the thing that will always totally. stay with me, now obviously the penis is in the box and the tree and the oats yeah, and the apples and the oats, that's that's oats and the apples. That that's in my mind like now, so thanks for that so <laughs> much, Jenny. Yeah. Um, that also makes an appearance in the book if you want to you want to read about it as well <laughs> as hear about it. Um, is is the descriptions of the, the semen of the devil being really cold Old. Mm. That was something that was repeated in lots of different confessions. Yeah. Now we can see why that is. It's kind of a social contagion thing because as Claire mentioned before about the pamphlets, then people read them and it was real kind of like the equivalent mm. of like, you know, 
Hello Magazine, if that still exists or whatever, mm. you know, the tabloids or whatever, it was a way of just getting information out. But that, the idea that that then passed around and people knew that mm. that was what happened and then that would appear in the confessions. Totally. And it was Horrifying. a way to talk about sex as well. Like, you know, people used to get their porn in um, their Bibles, you know. You would get lots of Bibles with all the erotic drawings and the little bits because the they were the only books you had. Mm. If you live in a society that's not allowed to talk about it and it's, you know, shame, shame, guilt, guilt, you know, whatever. Um, this is a way of society yeah. somehow engaging with all of these different things. You could talk about all those terrible things those terrible witches did. Yes. Give us more. Exactly. Yeah. More and if you didn't put things. that in the, the, the pamphlet, we're really pissed off. Do you yeah. yeah. Like, I right don't approve. Tell me more <laughs> yeah. about it. Exactly. No. Yeah. Exactly. Terrible. Yeah. I think we, we need to go to some questions now. Yes, that's okay. Let's. Is it possible to have the lights up a wee bit so we can see what we're dealing with? No. <laughs> what we're dealing with? <laughs> I'm just what joking. What are we dealing with? What are we dealing with? Do we have any questions? Oh, good, we do. Now, we've got microphones that are going to come down. So, there, at the back, that'd be great, please. Thank you. Hi. Can Hi. you hear me okay? Hi. <laughs> um, thanks, Jenny. I really enjoyed Hex, and it really brought alive kind of what Gailey went through. Um, that really came through in the book really strongly. But I wanted to ask you why... Iris told her that things hadn't improved because mm. I was thinking it's the night before she dies and she wants to know, have things gotten better? Do women have more power, more agency in the future? And Iris says, well, no, not really. And, and I thought that was a bit sad because we've got some very hard fought for rights, you know, that we have made progress, even though there's still misogyny and there's you know, evil things happening in the world. Mm. I thought, why did you decide not to give Gilia a bit of hope? Well, she's going to get executed. So <laughs> I felt like a truthful conversation in some ways between the two of them. And, you know, we have made progress in lots of ways. But if you've been, you know, murdered and you're lying in a park and policemen are taking photographs of you and sharing it, how far have we come? In that instance, I grew up in the care system where the women I grew up with and myself were actually at the absolute bottom of what was safe or what was um, protected by law or otherwise. So whilst, you know, we have come a long way in lots of ways, it also, in lots of ways, depends on who you are. And um, even if you are, you know, much more protected by having some, you know, social clout or being able to earn money or all those things, you are still absolutely vulnerable at any point that you walk out your door. Um, and that is a fact of our society. And I think it's something that, whilst we think lots of things are getting better, uh, I think a lot of things at the moment are very much getting worse. Um, and so that conversation between the two of them made made sense to me. And when, when Iris talks about the ways in which women are not safe now, um, a lot of it is talking about walking home at night and walking in the middle of the road and why do you carry your keys in your hand and why do you always look behind you? Why do you text your friend? Why do you think twice about going out for a run? Why are we seeing so many murders in the media at the moment um, that don't have any particular reason? You know, they can't say, oh, we killed them because they're a witch but they killed them. So, yeah, I think there is progress, but I think if you live in extreme poverty or if you, you live in a group that is um, massively othered, you know, the trans community at the moment is, uh, you know, going through so much um, really hard stuff. I think that we aren't all massively moved forward and we have fought for things and we have won things, but there is a lot still to fight for. So. She could have given her hope, but for me, it, it felt like it was important for... And also, Iris talks about, you know, being assaulted at 12 years old and a group of men being brought in to watch. She isn't there just from, for voyeuristic reasons. She isn't there just to talk about this othered person. She brings her own circumstances to that. So, yeah. Sorry, this is just really heavy conversation. <laughs> Sorry. There you but go. it's the truth. Thank you. Okay, we've got another question. I think somebody down at the front here, if that's okay. 
I'm thinking of the tremendous, as in all the stuff you write, uh, transitions between the real and the imagined and the way you live in that world of the null and creation from nothing and so on. But what really struck me about the novel and I'm still puzzling about um, is that it really wants to be alive and she isn't allowed to be. And, mm. and I think the most moving thing is that time when she says, you mean you've come all this way? and nothing's going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I just wondered if you'd talk a bit about that, because it's just reminded me of when you said about there's a price for all the world, imaginative world. Mm. Yeah, so there's there's a bit where Iris um, says to Gilly, well, what did you come for? Can you save me? And, and, and Gilly has to say no. And uh, that's just an awful thing. And... I guess that you know we are all helpless about so many things. You know we witness so many things in the world that we would love to directly intervene and and do something about, but but can't always do that. And so that helplessness that um, is part of society and is part of witnessing the things that people are going through. Um, and it was important to have that. You know, she doesn't go back and save her. She doesn't go back and change her fate. She lived through that. That was real. That was that was what happened, you know. And um, for the book to respect it, um, you had to to make a point of that as well. But they still laugh, they still engage, and uh, Iris, in her way, is willing to give her life if necessary just to keep another woman company for twelve hours before she gets executed. The bonds between women, the things that that are so rarely celebrated, it's so rarely seen in literature, you know, are are incredibly powerful. Um, yeah. Okay. I've uh, got some more questions. We've got time for some a couple of questions here. There you go. Hi there. I was wondering what your journey was from the care home to becoming a writer if you'd wanted to be a writer and what, what that path was for you? Um, so I was always writing. Well, I started writing poetry when I was seven for no reason whatsoever. I was living in a wee caravan park and uh, the library van used to come round once a week and I used to get the books from the library van and uh, I don't know, I don't know why. I guess partly it was stories, you know, I was always aware that the social workers would tell a story, you'd be brought to somebody's door, they'd open the door, they'd tell them a story about who you were, you'd get a story about who they were, then you'd live there, then you'd leave, then it would happen again. So as a child I was very aware of storytelling and how storytelling used to cover things, how storytelling used to have a veneer of respectability and also how storytelling used to say that you are something that you're not. Um, and so when I wrote my first poem, I was really like, there's my voice, you know, and I was mute a little bit for a short time as a kid, and I was definitely voiceless. And they said to me in the radio once, they said, were you writing like really gritty? And I was like, no, I was seven. <laughs> <laughs> like, that came later, do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> give me a break, but um, yeah. So, and I loved anybody who could tell me a story. You know, if somebody sat next to me in the bus, even now, if somebody sits next to me and they can tell a story, they've got my time. But books allowed me a chance to see that there was other worlds, and uh, it was vital, absolutely vital. I just would not have got through my upbringing without it. Um, and so, yeah, and it's occasionally I'll meet people and they'll be like, you know, never knew that you wrote, and it's like, well, you don't kind of blaze around the kid's home going, I'm a thespian, do you know what I mean? <laughs> I, I wouldn't even, you know, said that. Anyway, um, <laughs> I, I was, I was always, I think I was always telling a story one way or another, you know, and I always wanted to do it, but I had no idea how you actually met a writer. And even when I was 30, I hadn't really met a writer. And then when I was in London, when I was 33 and I was doing my degree and they were like, oh, you know, you're going to get published. And so I was just like, how, you know, I didn't know anybody at all. Um, but I was always writing and I felt, as much a writer when I was, you know, cleaning four bars for years as I do now. I just have people read it now in a way. Writing's what I am, it's it's who I am, you know. And I'm very grateful to it. it's it's served more purpose for me than 
just stories. I'm really sorry to be the big bad lady, but we have to draw it to a close there. Um, But Jenny is going to be signing outside, so you can speak to her there um, and ask her any questions that we couldn't fit in just now. We could go on, we often say this at events, but genuinely, we could go on for quite a a while longer with this, I think. Um, Jenny Fagan, thank you so much for coming and talking to us tonight. If you'd like to learn more about the Witches of Scotland, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Sign up for our mailing list at www.witchesofscotland.com to keep updated with the campaign. On that site, you'll be able to find how to link with us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram.